Well, it's a blessing to be here this evening uh, to see many familiar faces and uh, to bring encouragement and blessing, um, I hope, from Lake Sherwood. Um, the text for us this evening is from Psalm 121. I'll be using the uh, tra- ESV translation. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 629. Again, this is Psalm 121. The psalmist here says, um, It is a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Now as we prepare our hearts to hear the sermon, let us pray. O Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us into worship. That you have called us out of this world of darkness into your marvelous light. Again, I'm humbled to come before you, humbled to be an instrument of your glory and of your revelation to your people. Pray that this time would be a blessing to your people, that you would work in my heart as you have begun already, and you would continue that work through this sermon and work in the hearts of the hearers here today. That you would, as we read this morning from the psalmist, that you would watch over the words of my sinful lips and the meditations of all our hearts, that these things would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For not only are you our keeper, as we have con- will consider this evening, But as our keeper, you are our strength and our redeemer. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Hopefully you can understand why we uh, sung the uh, mighty fortress is our God. As we're considering that the Lord is our keeper. What is the strongest place of the fortress? But the keep. Where you are held in an impenetrable safe environment. And that is where we are with God. This text before us is a song that is that was composed by the psalmist. A psalm that is composed to be sung in a pilgrimage to the temple. As they are marching and and hiking, as it were, to the temple, they would sing this song to remind themselves of worship. And so it is among a group of psalms that they would sing as they're preparing their hearts to worship with God. Now songs, of course, they have a huge impact on our lives. They, they help us to channel our emotions and prepare our, our thoughts and our affections for what comes next. Sometimes we might listen to upbeat music as we're preparing to work out or throughout a workout so that we can endure through the end of it. We might listen to calming music as we're trying to study or 
preparing to calm down after a long and stressful day. So much of our life is coded, prepared, and and served with music. And if any of you, as I see many of you do have young children, you know exactly what I mean. Songs are crucial for us as we're raising up our children, as we're trying to teach them information. Songs can help them to happily clean up a room. Or they can keep them entertained on a long car ride. If you're like my family, they can even indicate a particular time of day or day of the week. Laura and I, my wife and I, have very distinctive songs that we sing to our children throughout the day and throughout the week. But one in particular we sing to our children as we're preparing to lay them down to sleep. We chose it carefully because of its meaning for for Laura and I, and hopefully one day the the meaning it will have for our children. As immediately prior to putting them down to bed, we sing to them not a very long song. It's just a a brief song. We sing verse 4 of this psalm to our children as we're preparing to, to lay them down to sleep. Now, if you look down at your Bible, if you look down at the text, you might understand why we would sing verse 4 to our children. The peace that it gives us as we prepare to sleep. There is no greater comfort to us as we close our eyes than that the Lord does not close his eyes. We can sleep in peace because God does not sleep. He is our keeper and he is always alert. He keeps our lives tightly held in his hand. And he helps us when we fall. He preserves us in our journey, keeping us from all evil. This psalm before us is among, as I've said, a group of psalms that the psalmist would sing, that the the Jews would sing as they're preparing their hearts for worship and they're journeying to Jerusalem, to Zion. It was a way to bring confidence in their journey and also to remind them that they're preparing to worship God, the maker of heaven and earth. The main idea of this psalm is very clear. The Lord is our keeper. The theme is clear. It can be easily determined just by looking at each verse as we see the repetition of the word keep, that the Lord is our keeper and that he keeps us. As our keeper, the Lord performs two tasks in particular, and that's what I'll be examining this evening. First, he helps us. He helps us in trials and difficulties. When we have fallen, he bolsters us up and picks us up in our weakness. He gives us confidence when we are in the valleys of life and all around us we face peaks and trials. And all around seems insurmountable. Second, he preserves us. As our keeper, he will not allow us to fall away, but when we fall, he brings us up and pulls us up. And even when we have not fallen, he is preserving us and keeping us from falling. He gives us shade from the striking sun and preservation from evil. Death will not come to us apart from his will. Each moment of our lives as we go out and in, the Lord preserves us, and even in the trials that we face, he brings us closer to himself. Each moment of our lives, the Lord preserves us. And the Lord is our keeper. So 
this brings me then to the first point. The Lord helps his people. Because the Lord is our keeper, he helps us and he strengthens us. When we are in distress and need a rescue from dangers and trials, he will help us out of them. This is our hope and our assurance. The psalm begins this song by lifting his eyes to the obstacles ahead. In the valley, he's surrounded by the hills, as I've already said. And the cry of verse 1 appears to be a hopeless one. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? If the psalm didn't go on, we'd probably think that this is a psalm of utter distress and not comfort. Looking forward, the psalmist sees utter destruction. He observes the impending heights of the mountains. Now, if you've ever hiked a mountain, you know what this is like. At each turn of the trail, you hope that you're going to see the top. You hope that as you round the next bend, you're going to see the trail leveling off, that you will have arrived at your destination, or at the very least that you will see you're making progress and you're getting closer. But it can start to seem that the top is untouchable. Success can seem unattainable and you wonder, how long can your strength hold out? How long will you be able to continue marching on? What we find as we look at verse 2 is that the depths of this valley become a driving motivation for the psalmist to look up. The very geography forces the psalmist to lift his eyes heavenward. Looking up, he sees the height of the mountain, yes. But the valley of distress becomes for him a valley of vision. High above the mountain, the Lord reigns in heaven. The Lord is our help. The echo of the psalmist's distress in verse 1 does not dissipate in the surrounding hills, but it reverberates back to him and bolsters him, encouraging him as he marches on. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made everything around me. He made heaven and earth. He made every obstacle that stands in my way. He made me. He is bringing me to himself. The one who is creator of all. So we may observe the wisdom of the psalmist here. We see the example that he sets for us in several ways. The psalmist doesn't look to his feet or his own strength as he's encountering these difficulties. Instead, he looks forward to his destination. Where am I going? He faces the obstacles head on. He doesn't ask that these obstacles are removed. Ultimately, these obstacles turn him to the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. He confidently asserts that the Lord is his help, and this gives him comfort and peace in his pilgrimage. It also becomes a motivation for him to examine the ways in which the Lord helps him. To examine the ways in which the Lord is preserving him day and night. His distress does not turn him away from God, which is what we might expect. No. His distress, as he looks to the impending heights of the mountains, turns him directly to God. In utter dependence on God's strength 
as the one who provides help and preservation in all of the trials that he faces. The emphasis then of verses 1 and 2 are quite clear. The Lord is our helper. No matter where we turn our eyes, there's no salvation anywhere else. No salvation apart from God himself. We may observe from the psalm that there is purpose then to the trials that we face. Although the devil may attempt to drive us away from the Lord by various trials. They won't work. You see, it's by the very means that the devil attempts to drive us away from the Lord, that the Lord brings us to himself. The devil attempts to drive us from the Lord by the trials that we face. But what we see here is that the psalmist, as he faces those trials that one might think would drive him from the Lord, he is instead driven right to the Lord. We can look back on our own lives and we see this too. While we experience trials, it may seem as though God is distant. But when he brings us through them, he feels so much closer at the end. And we can look back on our lives and see those past trials that we faced. And know the Lord brought me through those. As I'm facing the trials today... He has the strength to bring me through this trial as well. This is the case whether the trials that we face are due to our sin or due merely to the providence of God. The origin of the trials that the psalmist faces here are unclear, but the result is not. While Satan seeks to use these trials and temptations to turn our hearts from God, the Lord uses them to correct our vices. And to keep us from wandering away from him. When we face trials apart from sin, there are means for us to lean heavily upon the Lord. For strength. To call to him for justice as the psalmist does elsewhere. And as Job does. They reveal to us our frailty and our weakness. They remind us that we are but dust. In utter dependence on the creator who formed us. And this causes us to lift our eyes to the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. He has made us and we are his. Where else can we turn in our weakness? The cry of the psalmist, where does my help come from, isn't one of searching for the helps around him. He's not looking for a self-help book or something like that. He knows where his help comes from. So he's reminding his soul, my help comes from one place and one place alone. And that is my God who is in heaven. He made all things and he will bring me through this. The Lord is our only hope. He's our only help. He's our only strength. Where can we turn when we've lost our job? Or our income has been diminished. We might have plans of what's going to transpire over the next few months or years of our life. And all of that falls apart. What do we do? Where do we turn? Where do we turn when health is taken from us and we're sitting in the hospital and we're wondering, is tomorrow going to be different? Am I ever going to live the life that I lived a week ago? 
The psalmist says that at these moments, we look to the one who upholds the earth in the strength of his power. We turn to the Lord. If, on the other hand, we are facing these trials as a result of our sin, we may be inclined to fear that we cannot come to the Lord because we have, he's the one whom we have sinned against. We might wonder if there's grace that's rich enough to cover the sins that we've committed. We may fool ourselves into believing that we should fix ourselves before we come to the Lord. That we cannot commune with a holy God. This may be what the devil would cause us to believe, but the psalmist teaches us the opposite. What do the trials do? What does sin do? As we see in the psalmist in Psalm 51, what does sin do? It drives us to the Lord. He is the only hope. Where else can we go? By our sin, the Lord brings us closer to himself because he is the only one who can redeem us. He is the only one that can cleanse our conscience. There is no hope of salvation apart from God alone. Even the most righteous on earth cannot redeem us. But God can. We turn to the one whom we have offended to find reconciliation, to find forgiveness, to find redemption and cleansing. What is it that the psalmist is on his way to do but worship in the temple? Where else can he find reconciliation but in the temple? Where else can we in our own day find reconciliation but through Christ and the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf? It's a wonder that God would redeem a sinful people and call them to himself. It's a supreme mystery. And yet scripture is clear that God not only makes the way but that he is the way. He is the only way to salvation. There's nowhere else that we can turn and find life apart from God alone. Psalmist makes it very clear in his call for help. Help comes from the Lord and no other. This is why the psalmist sings this song as a way to prepare himself to worship in the temple. When he's afraid of of the sin that he's committed, Afraid of his conscience bothers him on that journey to worship. His help still comes from the Lord. When he is facing trials, as I've already said, not as a result of his sin, but merely as out of providence, the Lord is still his help. That is his purpose in his journey to be with the Lord, to worship. No matter what trials you're facing, beloved, bring them to the Lord. Ask for salvation when you have broken his law. He will hear you and he will comfort you. He will eagerly take you to his fold and he will care for you and protect you. Obstacles in life are not our obstacles to God. In fact, the psalmist teaches us the opposite, right? Obstacles and trials in life are the very pathway to God. Each step that we take to overcome the mountains that stand before us lead us closer to God. 
when we are walking with the Lord and we find obstacles, we know that it is because we are, we are meant to face those obstacles because we are walking with the Lord and that he will bring us through them. Satan may hurl stones at us, but those stones that Satan's hurling at us become the very stepping stones to God. What's my point? My point is this. And too often in life, we ask the Lord to remove our trials, to remove our difficulties. And in doing so, I think that we miss out on opportunities to glorify the Lord through those trials and in those difficulties. When we experience these difficulties and trials, we want them removed as quickly as possible so that we can return to a life of peace and tranquility. We ask that the impending summits of life be removed instead of worshiping God who is the all-powerful creator of all. He's the creator of the fearsome mountains that we face. And he has put them in our life for a reason. To drive us closer to himself. We miss out on opportunities to worship God in the power of his strength and rest on his strength when we cannot overcome those difficulties. When our strength is spent and we don't know what to do, we know that the Lord will help us, as he promises to do. How is it that the psalmist can have such confidence in the salvation that will come from the Lord? There's no doubt in my mind that he has this trust because of the covenantal faithfulness of the Lord. He's seen this in the life of Israel and intimately enjoyed it in his own life. Why do we look to the past? So that we can have confidence in the future. And we can marvel at the work that God did in our past and wonder at the glory that God will bring to himself in our future. The psalmist here trusts that God will do as he's promised. He trusts that God who redeemed Israel from Egypt will help him. As he heard the Egyptians as they cried out in slavery, he will hear the psalmist in his cry for help. The psalmist takes confidence in the knowledge that the Lord will one day crush the head of Satan by the seed of the woman. This promise was ever present on the mind of the Hebrew. They looked with eager expectation for the Messiah to come. Surely the Messiah is in mind here because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, as Paul tells us elsewhere. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah more clearly in view than in the Psalms. The psalmist who wrote this looked to the promised seed of the woman, knowing that that son would come. Although he didn't see clearly how that would take place or when that would come, he had assurance and confidence that it would take place. He knew as surely as God is alive that the Messiah would come and ultimately he was looking to Christ as the perfect help and salvation. God is our keeper and he helps us. In our weakness, he preserves us in all the trials of life that we face. 
And this brings me then to the second point. The Lord preserves us. He preserves his people. Because the Lord is our keeper, he will preserve us in the trials that we face. He protects us. This means he will not allow harm to come upon us. In verse 3, the psalmist says that the Lord will not let your foot be moved. It seems that he's continuing here with the theme of hiking a mountain. This makes sense as it's a psalm of ascent as he's hiking this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, ascending the Mount Zion. Perhaps you've been on a hiking trip where you've taken a step on a slick rock or a leafy trail only to have your foot slip out from under you. I can recall as a boy hiking portion of the Appalachian Trail. And as I was running to a vista to see the, the uh, countryside, I slipped and I fell and my head hit a log. And I slammed against this log. I got a painful cut on my head and, and every step of the way I, I felt the throbbing pain from that cut where I had fallen. I had to finish this, this hike with searing pain from the cut. It's not pleasant at all. It's pretty embarrassing, actually. The psalmist says that the Lord in his preservation will not allow your foot to be moved. Your foot will not slip out from under you because the Lord is standing by your side to hold you when you stumble. The Lord is there. As we ascend the mountain before us, the Lord is with us and he is alert. He does not slumber. The the psalmist mentions that he does not slumber in verse 3, but he comes back to that with greater emphasis in verse 4. The Lord does not slumber nor sleep, he tells us. Now this is significant for ancient Near Eastern gods. It was commonly believed that the gods do sleep, that the gods are still captured. And the gods still live very much a daily human life. But they are just a superhuman. You might, be, you might consider the taunts of Elijah on the, to the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. As they are crying out to Baal from morning till midday, there's no answer from Baal. No answer from heaven. This storm god who's supposed to bring rain to so Elijah taunts them. He says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, and he needs to be awakened. You see, the gods of the ancient Near East, they're just superhumans. They still had weaknesses. As I already said, they they fell asleep, and they could be captured by other gods. The psalmist is making a distinction between the God of Israel and the gods of the nations. God does not slumber, and nor does he sleep. Now notice the order that the psalmist says this. He says slumber before sleep. He's negating a deep sleep before he negates a light resting. This is a a normal Hebrew way of emphasizing for us God's care over us, but it's not uncommon in English. We say the same thing. We do this to speak For climactic impact. We would say in essence. I didn't sleep last night. I didn't even close my eyes for a second. See how the emphasis comes there. That's what the psalmist is doing here. The Lord does not slumber. Nor does he sleep. 
the Lord is ever alert to protect us in times of difficulty and preserve us. Now, this is huge, right? Imagine you're going on a car trip and you're going to be driving late at night and you decide a group of you are going to sleep in the car while the driver stays awake. How many of us can imagine saying to the driver, okay, we're going to sleep and while you're driving, you know, you're not allowed to sleep, but if you start to get tired, you can close your eyes for like a minute or two or something. We'd never say that, right? Because we know it only takes a matter of seconds for a dangerous accident to take place. Instead, our conversation would go more like this. Look, we're going to sleep. If you even start to feel tired, pull over and one of us is going to drive. It's not worth the risk. We don't have any confidence in a drowsy driver. And the psalmist is saying we should have no confidence in a drowsy God. The Lord does not slumber. He doesn't even sleep. He's always alert to protect us and preserve us. It's not merely that the Lord is alert and for us, but he is creator of all. He is all-powerful. Each verse of the psalm adds another layer to our understanding of God as our keeper and as our shepherd. Verses 6 and 7 speak of the Lord preserving us from the harsh elements of the day and night. We will not fall victim to the powers of creation because the Lord of all creation is at our side. And he is our keeper. Now here in Florida, we can definitely understand the dangers of being exposed to the sun. The power of the sun. The heat of the sun. It's so, it happens so quickly where we might have heat stroke or even death if we are exposed to the sun. But the psalmist says that he shades us so that the sun cannot strike us by day. And the powers and terrors of the world around us, even the dangers of night, cannot strike us. Nothing can harm us because they submit to the Lord. They submit to the word of his power. They submit to his voice and by his command they act. Apart from his sovereign power, they can do nothing. In verse 7, the psalmist addresses fears of death and evil. He knows that God has removed the wrath that was owed to him. While again, he may not understand fully how this will take place, he knows that atonement will be made. He knows that death will be required. That he would not die. That's the very purpose of his journey to Zion. He treads along this winding pathway in order to make offering to God in the temple. Christ will one day endure the wrath of God on his behalf. Christ can keep us from all evil because he endured all evil for us. Here the psalmist says that the Lord not only is able to preserve us in evil, but that he will keep you from all evil. The psalmist asserts that in communion with God we may boldly face death because the Lord keeps our life in his hands. When we approach that eerie doorway of death and we see with terror the door standing before us, as we open that door, we do not see 
a foe ready to pounce, but a slain corpse who has been killed in Christ's death. We can face even death because the Lord, our God, faced death and won. He rose again. And so we can do that with boldness and confidence. Death has lost its sting for us because Christ endured the sting of death on our behalf. This was all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And we, at our place in redemption, can look back and see Christ and the fulfillment of all of that. Verse 8 tells us that the extent of the Lord's preservation in our lives is so great that he keeps our going out and our coming in. This is a bookend. He is keeping everything. Everything that transpires in our lives is under the preservation and sovereignty of God. There's no place where God cannot and will not keep us. Upon his resurrection, as the Lord Jesus prepared to ascend up into heaven, he tells the same thing to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whatever happens, I'm with you. Whatever happens, I will preserve you, and I'm there to help you. And this is where Psalm 121 climaxes. The Lord who made heaven and earth orders every aspect of our lives. He carefully keeps us and he walks with us as a good shepherd. Now here in the the second half, this latter half of the psalm, we may observe the tender fatherly love which God places upon us. We come to understand the love of God toward us which is manifested in his loving care for us as our keeper. We may, be, we may stagger and be ready to fall, but the Lord sustains us by his power. We may struggle to get rid of anxiety and fear of what lies ahead, but the Lord is with us. He doesn't leave us. The Lord stands by us, and the psalmist says that the Lord keeps watch over us increasingly. Do you fear what the future will hold for your family? Do you worry about the future of your church or of the country? Wondering what the world will be like, what this country will be like in 10, 20, 50 years. What is it that my children are going to have to face? I'm not going to be there to protect them. I won't be there to preserve them, to help them. But the Lord will be. The Lord is not going away. The Lord, as he is with us today, will be with our children tomorrow. The Lord will sustain us. Lift your eyes to Christ. Lift your eyes to the creator of heaven and earth, the shepherd of your soul. He will sustain you. The Lord preserves us as a fulfillment of his covenantal nature. He has bound himself to us. And given us his son, who sealed it by his blood. As we took the Lord's Supper this morning, that blood is a sign of the new covenant. A new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. 
we live on this side of the resurrection. We have so much more reason to have confidence than the psalmist had here. Because it has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. Often we believe that the Lord is far off. That he'll, he'll never, we can't find him. The psalmist speaks against such folly. The Lord is with us. He's at our side. We wrongly think that the greatest terror in life is that we will be forced to face some difficulty, some trial. That our, our regular rhythm of the world will, will be messed up. The psalmist shows us instead that the greatest terror is not that we are going to face suffering. Because what has the Lord told us? As I have faced suffering, you will face suffering. The greatest terror is that we face suffering and neglect to turn to the Lord. By refusing to look to God and ask for help and preservation in our suffering, that is the greatest terror. We will experience suffering, but in the Lord's strength we shall endure. If you fear what lies ahead, whether it's for your marriage or your children, whether it's for the country or your employment, whatever it may be, if you fear what lies ahead, allow that to be a driving force to direct you to the Lord. As the psalmist lifts his eyes to the hills to see what was above the hills. What is in heaven? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Allow us to do the same. Now I want to be careful. I don't want to belittle the suffering that many of you have endured or will endure. Instead, what I'm trying to do, and I hope you see that the psalmist is doing the same thing, is that he's magnifying the God who stands with us when we face those sufferings. As great as our suffering is, God is greater. As great as our sin, God is greater. No matter what you think stands between you and God, between you and eternal life, God is greater. And he is with us in those times. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He made everything around us. Just to put this in perspective, there's no molecule, no atom that is before us that we can ever interact with that is not subject to God. Every single thing that we face, whether it's pollen that gives us a cold or you know allergies, all of those are created by God. All of those are subject to God. The repetition of this psalm may at first seem strange. Why does he keep coming back to the Lord as our keeper? The Lord as in the way that he preserves us. But when we reflect on it, upon it, the purpose becomes clear. The psalmist is reminding his own heart in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, the Lord is with me. And he's doing the same as this, is, this psalm is put to words to be sung we can sing and remind ourselves that the Lord is with us when we are facing the trials, when we're facing the difficulties. We may say and repeat this psalm, each verse, and build upon that that the Lord is with us and preserving us. 
reminding ourselves that God is caring for us as our shepherd. He knows, the psalmist knows that he's prone to forget God. He's prone to become overwhelmed by the trials. And this is due to his own stubbornness. We do the same thing. We're unwilling to be relieved of the command of our lives and we're like stubborn sheep. We don't know the path. We don't know the mountain precipices around us. We don't know all the wolves and yet we want to do it our way. We want to wander around and find our own way. Our Lord will fight the wolves for us and endure the injuries on our behalf. With his staff, he will keep us back from evil and he will preserve us and discipline us for our foolish wandering. All in order to bring us closer to himself. Even when we're experienced many times the tender fatherly love of God, we may tremble at the slightest disturbance of peace, thinking, maybe God has forgotten me. Rather than remembering that in those times, the Lord may be bringing us closer to himself, that we have forgotten the Lord. We forget his tender kindness and care for us. Although we've seen his grace and mercy lavished upon us, we fear that he's not going to be gracious to us again. The psalmist seeks to direct us to the Lord who has protected us. His comfort is that the Lord is good, gracious, and powerful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The goal of the psalm is to teach our hearts of the surety of God's providence so that we may put away all false assurances. Where does our help come from? From the Lord. We don't go elsewhere for help. We go to the Lord. God alone, he is our keeper, and in him we shall endure. Just as songs in our own day prepare us for what lies ahead, the psalmist is preparing his own heart, preparing the hearts of those around him for what is, lies ahead. He's on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, a pilgrimage to worship the Lord and commune with him. Now, you might think that's so foreign to me. I don't go to the temple. I don't worship in the temple. I don't make sacrifices. But, beloved, we are on a pilgrimage. And we are going to commune with the Lord. As we are making each daily trek of our pilgrimage, we can very much identify with the psalmist here. We face trials. And we seek the Lord to commune with him. We seek the heavenly Jerusalem and we look forward to eternal communion with God, our shepherd and our keeper. We look to the Lord and we find confidence. He will not allow us to fall away. He is our keeper and our shepherd. And despite our fears and terrors, he will sustain us. He stands beside us to help us and preserve us. He is the good shepherd and keeper of his flock. Jesus declared that he was the shepherd of Israel in John 10, as we read earlier. Our Lord says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Our Lord Jesus is telling us that he is the keeper of Israel. More than that, that he is the keeper of all his elect throughout the world and throughout the ages. He unites us to himself and redeems us by his death. 
Were it not for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we could never come to worship and commune today. And we could never commune with God eternally in heaven. But that has taken place. Christ did die on the cross. His blood has been shed. In his death, he conquered death and Satan. He has risen again and ascended up into heaven and all authority, as I've said, is given to him. And he's with us in our pilgrimage, calling us to himself. He is the good shepherd and keeper of our souls. And because of his work, we can have peace with God. We may have help in times of need and preservation throughout all of life. With that, let us go to him in prayer. O great God Almighty, what a blessing it is to come before you, to know that you are our God, that we are your people. We pray that you would bless us and work in our hearts. Work this word in our hearts that we would call upon you and know that you are our help. We praise you and thank you. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn.